hospice care should no longer be characterized as something that happens in the last few days. Hospice is really about providing care and support at the moment that that family believes it's necessary and needs that extra support towards the end of life. Hi, I'm Bobby. I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years. I'm now a caregiver, consultant, educator, and caregiver support group leader. I also speak on the national and international level about coping with dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might share a laugh or two. We all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget my wine, Mike. Ah, no. Grape juice, definitely for you. (laughs) Especially on Fridays, right? (laughs) Or Wednesday or any other day that ends in a Y, right? (laughs) (laughs) You never know. (laughs) That's right. Towards the end of our caregiving for my dad, we were able to have some in-home care, which gave you a break via the Veterans Administration and eventually in-home hospice care. Absolutely. Because your dad was a veteran with 100% service-related disability, we had a a number of programs to assist us throughout the time as a caregiver and eventually led to in-home hospice because we were able to keep him at home and that's, that's what he wanted and that's what we wanted. But the hospice care was absolutely invaluable. You know, when we had... Yeah, and when someone could come in when he was still up, be able to get up and move around to help getting him into the shower and to bathe him. And even watching some of the things that they did to take care of him, teaching me how to change the sheets on his bed while he was in it, um, that kind of thing. So for us, hospice was an excellent um, service, and we were so glad to get it. And that brings us to today's guest, and she is the Executive Director of Private Duty Home Care at the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Emily Bartolucci. Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bobby and Mike. It's really amazing to be here with you guys and and to speak with your listeners and with both of you. I understand that you had your own personal experience with hospice. I did. Um, I actually decided to work in the home care industry because of experience that um, my family and I had with hospice care. My um, father-in-law and my mother-in-law came to live with us. um, Gosh, it must have been now maybe 10, 13 years ago at this point. And um, my father-in-law was diagnosed um, with something close to almost like a palsy-related type illness and was very degenerative and Over a number of years, he required more and more of assistance, and we were very fortunate that we had assistance from the VA and from their program. But, um, you know, a few years before he passed away, we actually had hospice care come in, and it wasn't something that I was familiar with. It wasn't something that our family was familiar with. Um, And when the hospice nurses and the company that we ended up working with came into the home, it was such a relief for us. It was a relief um, to see the type of care and assistance he was being provided, but also the type of assistance and support that the hospice agency provided to us as a family during those years. Um, But also even afterwards, the support they provided, you know, in the six, 12 months after he had passed away was so meaningful to us and was a lot of the reason that I ended up um, pursuing a career in the home care world. 
I, I'm glad you said that and that he was he was in hospice or for a, a good bit of time because unfortunately too many people or a great many people associate hospice with impending death and that's that's not always the case and often the sooner you're able to get hospice care the better off um, we had hospice in our home for three months before my father-in-law passed away in at his bedside you know the day before he actually passed and it was it was a blessing in so many ways now unfortunately there are instances where, where that's not the case um, one of our good friends her mother was 99 years old when she was brought into hospice care. And instead of reducing her medications, um, for some reason, they wanted to add medications. They wanted to do surgery. Um, different and tests. It just, it just, it was so different than what we had. And I kept explaining to our friend, you know, this is not what hospice is supposed to be. This is not what hospice is like. So I am so interested in having you talk with our listeners about what hospice does when it works right and how it's not something to be afraid of. Yeah, I um, it breaks my heart a little bit always hearing, you know, occasionally those stories where hospice didn't go right. And um, I think in any industry, you find occasionally those bad actors that are out there that don't necessarily embrace the true spirit of what the hospice you know, care program is, and don't necessarily meet the expectations of the family where they are and what they need. And it's unfortunate to hear that. But I think for every story, there's one of those, there's hundreds of stories out there of how hospice has truly benefited those families and those patients when they've had the opportunity to engage with them. Um, You're right. Hospice care is no longer or should no longer be characterized as something that happens in the last few days before end of life. Hospice is really about providing care and support to a family at the moment that that family believes it's necessary and needs that extra support towards the end of life. And it can include all things towards um, palliative type care, include all things like supportive type care, but it's really meant to help to support that family and patient so they can continue living in the place that they feel comfortable in, a place that they can feel surrounded by family or friends, wherever they're calling home, um, but still offering the support and necessary pieces of clinical or supportive type care and services that are necessary to continue living out their life in the way that they'd like to continue living out their life, not in the way that somebody else deems that they should. It's a lot about patient choice. It's a lot about respecting those kinds of shared decision-making in that time. And I think that's what hospice is all about. And it's no longer something that shouldn't be a scary word that people should be looking at. They should be looking at it as a way to support one another in those last moments, whether they be one month, two weeks, two days, or even years, like in the case of my father-in-law, who was recertified over and over and over again, we had no idea when he was going to pass away. And he was on hospice care for at least a couple of years before he ended up ultimately passing. You know, it's interesting because you said, you know, there are those ones and twos bad actors out there. But unfortunately, that story gets told, right? And so that person tells two people and they tell two people 
and it ripples out and so on and so on. And before you know it, it sounds like all hospice has that problem. And it's really that one or two instances. And like you said, hundreds or thousands of, of good um, situations. Yeah, I think you're right. Those, those more critical and disappointing stories tend to make their way to the public light and spread like wildfire, when in reality, we should be really spreading the fantastic stories that are happening. I always share with folks, one of my most memorable things happened from one of the social workers that was working with my father-in-law. She'd noticed that, you know, he couldn't speak at this time, of course, and he was he was um, primarily blind. Um, but he used to love reading the newspaper. And she noticed that when she brought him a newspaper and they talked about those kinds of things, it was such an engaging experience for him. And he was less agitated and he was calmer. And I look back at that moment and I think that wasn't clinical care that was provided. It was something that was special to our family and something that we learned from her to be able to do on a daily basis and meant so much more to us. And that's something that I me- I remember from that and really what they did to have our children be able to have that quality time reading the newspaper with their grandfather in that moment was something special that they were able to provide and help us with. Now you mentioned palliative care and support care. Would you care to speak to that? The differences between them and when you might transition from one to another? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think there's so much buzz around these days around palliative care and what it is and what it means. Um, Palliative care does not necessarily have to be sort of done in tangent with hospice care. It's really there to provide sort of all of the care aspects that are encompassed with what the patient wants and what the patient needs in those moments, but not necessarily leading towards hospice. And our association works a lot with getting the word out there that palliative care can happen even within the home health care benefit. It can happen way before anyone is talking about hospice care and supportive care towards ends of life. It's really meant to provide supportive care and services for an individual um, that's not necessarily clinically focused, but could have some focus, but really is about the shared benefit of what the patient and family want and believe that's best for them. Um, I talk a lot about shared decision-making because I'm a big believer that the patient experience and the experience that individuals have with the decisions that they make for their care throughout the care continuum really should be something that is a meeting of the minds of the care professionals, as well as those that are experiencing the care firsthand. And palliative care is really a way to help support that shared decision and the care that happens even before hospice happens. But what I love about palliative care is that often those physicians and clinicians and support care professionals that are working with the families on offering this to them, what they're doing is is they're creating a care pathway for them and they're having conversations about what hospice is and making it be not something so scary in those moments. And they're preparing them for what the end of that care continuum will look like through those types of supportive measures that happen through that palliative type benefit. Do you work with um, agencies? I know that when hospice came into our home, it was through the um, Veterans Association and, you know, hospital bed was um, sent in, uh, bedside commode was set in, you know, those kind of things to help with that support. Um, 
So do you work with organizations, you know, that you know provide the best care to people that come to you looking for a resource? The association that I work for works with many agencies across the U.S. Um, We have about 36,000 folks that are members of our association, and um, they're mainly providers, and they provide care, any type of in-home care. It could be private duty personal care services. It could be hospice care, home health care, the whole nine yards. We have folks that are um, members of the VA, We have folks that are independent agencies. They could be part of a larger health system, um, really across the whole continuum of what you might find in the home. But what I love about those that I work with is that because they're members of our association, they're all committing themselves to higher levels of quality of care, and they want to commit themselves to providing the best experience possible for families. And I love that I get to work with so many of them and hear those good stories that they're sharing and be part of the advocacy for that type of quality care and benefit um, to families across the nation. That's what we work so hard to do. I I don't share with too many people. I started my career as a CNA. I was a, a, a personal assistant, essentially, in a med surge ICU in Boston Children's. It is one of the most rewarding careers and the hardest career you will ever have as a caregiver, but it means so much to families to be able to provide that kind of care and service. And I only wish that more families were able to take advantage of this and knew about it because it can be so meaningful for them, especially um, as they need those types of more support and palliative type care all the way to hospice. And even afterwards, it can be so beneficial for families. So I was on the um, National Association for Home Care and Hospice website, and I saw that there was a number of resources and educational opportunities there. Now, it appeared to me that you had to be a member of or part of a member organization. As we were individuals caring for my dad, would we be able to partake in those educational or those resources and how? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, The main part of our association, because of course we represent our members that that pay in to to be part of our group, um, is a paid sort of area on the website and is closed off to the general public. But we do provide a section of the website specifically for caregivers, and we specifically provide information for caregivers so that they can make the best decisions about what agencies they might want to choose, making sure that they're a quality type agency, someone that is a member with us. Um, I've talked to lots of other caregivers as well if they need specific information about um, certain things within their states or certain programs that might help them. Um, We do refer a lot of folks to different state associations or other programs that we know. We have partnerships with AARP um, and many of the other caregiver coalitions as well um, that we're always referring um, caregivers to to make sure they have the best tools and resources necessary. I will tell you that it's sort of my personal mission to make sure that we're doing more um, to provide that kind of care, support, and information to caregivers because while home personal caregivers and family caregivers aren't necessarily always um, considered as part of some of these organizations and trained as part of these organizations, 
you guys are so important as part of the care continuum. And really what we're trying to do now is to provide those types of supports and group supports and information because you're part of the answer. You're part of that care that's being provided um, and so valuable as part of that because it's that shared decision, that shared sort of larger caregiver group that's happening. We want to do more. And that's really in, as part of our trajectory to do that. I am so glad that you said that because in many circumstances, even dealing with doctors, the impression is, well, what do you know? <laughs> you're not you're not a professional. Um, and because I suspected that might happen when I first realized the um, amount of care that my father and I was going to have, I actually went to school to become a nursing assistant. So I would be able to speak to uh, healthcare professionals in a way that they understood and would respect what I had to say. But not everybody does that. But the home caregiver is the one that lives with that person and sees what's going on. And we know that somebody with dementia in particular can put on a great show of pretending they're much better than they are when somebody else comes into the home. So, you know, having your association valuing what that home caregiver lives with and how they can be a part of the team, I think is absolutely wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. We, um, I spent a lot of years working in the experience realm for patient experience, and um, I work a lot with the Barrel Institute, and um, we talk a lot about how, just as you characterize it, it used to be that the clinicians would believe that they knew more than the patients. They were there to do something to them and do something for them. And now I think the industry is moving at a very fast pace towards care should be something done with our patients and families. It should be done something in coordination and collaboration with them. And we should value what they hear and say and do because you guys are there doing it every single day. You're right when you have someone that has dementia or Alzheimer's or other things going on with them, you guys see it each and every day. We're only there for a small portion of the time and we rely on your experience and your insight and in tuition to help us create those shared decisions together. And the beautiful thing now, I remember we had an incident where my dad was exhibiting some behaviors and Bobby couldn't get the neurologist to understand what was going on. And he was pretty dismissive. And she said, what do I got to do video? And the guy said, that would be great. And once we showed that video, um, he was like, wow, okay. Because my dad was a great actor when he was in front of the doctor. And that's so important. Now we have these wonderful cell phones that can take videos all the time to show the way that the different behaviors manifest itself, where you might not be able to describe it in a way that a clinician will understand. So that's something that Bobby always recommends. Video the behavior so that people can see and be more understanding. Well, and also in many cases, you're not dealing with just one type of illness or in one doctor. I mean, we consider how many yeah. that we had to deal with and they didn't always talk to each other. And um, I, I sat them down, the whole group of them one day and said, <laughs> you have hundreds of patients, I have one. 
and I'm going to make sure that we're all talking to each other. So if he's on the psych ward, we're also paying attention to his medical issues. And when he's on the medical ward, we're also paying attention to his psych issues. Um, and having a team and being part of that team can make it so much easier for everybody involved. Yeah, I think um, the families themselves and the patient are very important parts of the care team. And care coordination is one of those challenges, coordination and communication across all of those different teams. It's the, it's the biggest and the key insight I share with everyone from an experience standpoint and an outcome standpoint is that if you can harness that and you can really get everybody working in coordination with each other, the family being a true advocate and the, and the clinicians being a true advocate as well, True care coordination has the best outcomes because it's meeting everyone's expectations and needs and everyone's freely sharing information, but it's hard and it does require families to be advocates and be proactive and it requires clinicians to be open and willing to listen in a very active way. Um, and we spend a lot of time now trying to teach clinicians to do that and care teams to coordinate with one another because when it happens and it works well, it's beautiful and it has fantastic outcomes for everyone involved. Um, I, I, I have a question now. I'm, I'm a home caregiver and I, I reached a point where I know that I need help. I need assistance, but I'm not sure what level of assistance that I need. Where do I go to find out if it's support care, palliative care, hospice care? It's a great question. And I think it's a question that a lot of people are faced and don't know the answer because there isn't one place where you go and find that information. I always tell people, um, start by thinking about what you would like. Start by making a list of your expectations and then speak with your care provider, your primary care, those specialists that you're working with, and talk to them about some of the things that you need or some of the wishes that you have. And then reach out to some of the organizations in your community that might be providing those types of home care or home-based care and services to have a dialogue with them. Any of the providers that we work for at the association if you call them up in your community, and I've worked for some of them in the past, um, they are more than willing to talk to patients and families about what do you need? What's going on? Tell us what's happening. What can we do for you? Here's where you can find the resources and tools for those. We have some available on our website. There's some available on many of the providers' websites and local communities, but also look towards like your AARPs or your leading age type organizations. They have tons of resources out there for patients and families, and we're getting better and better at putting those things together to not only describe about what is the difference and what is the time, because it's never the same time for every family. Every family has different needs and wants. And I would never say to a family, well, if X, Y, and Z is happening, you need this, because that might not be what they need in that moment. We have to think about the family and their individual needs, um, as well as what resources we can pull together for them to make it as easy as possible. So it's not a checklist driven. If A, B, and C, <laughs> yeah. then Q, right? <laughs> exactly. God, I hate those. <laughs> if then, if then, do. if then. And it takes the personal touch out of it yeah. when it's all uh, checklist driven. I have to ask, um, could you give some tips to our listeners on how to select the right 
home care provider, what they should look for in a home care provider. I mean, ours was assigned by the VA, so we really didn't have a say in the matter. They said, here's what we're going to pay for and send to you. And we went, okay. (laughs) And it worked, and it worked beautifully. Yes, it did. Yeah, I think um, when I talk to folks and they say, well, can you recommend someone or what should I look for? I tell them, you know, we live in a a digital age. And so there's a lot of information you can find on your own, um, just on websites about the reputation of an agency, um, about their caregivers. But when I talk to agencies and I'm I'm speaking to them directly and I want to understand the type of quality care they're providing, I ask them questions about consistency of the caregivers they're providing. Am I going to have a consistent caregiver that's working with me that can understand what I'm looking for? Um, Can you help me understand um, sort of the qualifications and training that your caregivers receive? We're all in the middle of a pandemic right now, obviously. And so infection control and prevention and safety and security are really important. Um, So ask them to tell you about what training they're their clinicians and their aides are receiving on a regular basis and how often they're receiving those types of training um, and certifications. Other things I ask them to look at, um, is the agency licensed and certified with all of the things that the state requires them to be? And many of the state consumer protection agencies and health agencies will tell you right on their website which agencies are actually licensed and need to be licensed and requirements in your state. Make sure they're up to date. Make sure that there's nothing challenging those types of requirements. And most of all, ask them for recommendations and referrals from other clients that they've had. Ask to talk to other families. An agency that's reputable will be more than willing to share that information with you um, or share sort of where they're satisfaction levels are or where they are from a um, you know a star rating if they're a home health type model and the government is providing those types of regulatory requirements and data put outs make sure you're asking them any information you can get from them about training education they receive consistency of care talk to their staff talk about how often they're available to you who you're talking to get a chance to know who the agency is Many of them are really, really good. There's far more good agencies out there than are those bad actors, but you have to find the agency that fits for you and your family, and that may be different from one agency to another. Wow, you have shared so (laughs) much valuable information with us and with our listeners. Um, My uh, head's spinning. (laughs) Yes, and in a good way. That's right. Um, I can't thank you enough. Really is. (laughs) You, you like the look you. on my face, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have to commend both of you. Both of you are providing such an important, um, you know, service to your listeners. And you guys obviously care so much about the patients and families out there. And um, I have to thank you because you guys are amazing. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And I'm so glad that um, we connected and uh it's you that we got to talk yes. to us with yes. t- today. Wow, I have so many notes here. Um, yeah, me too. You know, shared decision-making, I think, is, is an excellent point that she brought out. And find the agency that provides what you need and what you're looking for, and that's a very, very personal thing. Yeah, not only that, but also understand what you need 
and want so that you can find the agency that can provide what you need and want. So, yeah, that first step of understanding what it is, if you just go in and said, I need help, well, help with what? Oh, I don't know, but I need help. It doesn't do a whole lot of good. And a number of us don't understand the difference between palliative care and hospice care right. and um, what services are provided and where to find them. So, Yes, and, you know, I'm sure I missed a couple of things, but my question on how to find the right home care provider, right, she said check on the reputation, the consistency of the new care of, of caregivers, meaning is there going to be a new one every two weeks? Because yes, and that can they, be a problem. Yes, because they job hop because they're not getting paid. Um, and uh, the qualifications and training and certifications um, and the licensing and certifications of the organization by the state. That's, those are some good, good tips uh, on trying to navigate your way through the obstacle course that is <laughs> home care. So thank you again for talking to us about home care and hospice and you know for being such a great guest. You can find more information about Emily in the National Association for Home Care and Hospice on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes or the Roger That Facebook page and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.